All right, you have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 22, please. Luke chapter 22. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been bombarded with questions. No one can stand against him. He just, um, but the plot is thick. They, um, they want to get rid of him. So Jesus now is a few days away from the cross, ready to die for the sins of the world. And um, as chapter 22 begins, it is approaching the Passover. As you know, um, every male Jew over the age of 20 in the Old Testament had to present themselves three times a year. A Passover, Feast of Pentecost, and, and Yom Kippur. Um, so the Feast of Tabernacles, really from the 15th to the 22nd, but that included the 10th, Yom Kippur. A lot of these um, feasts were lumped together. But in chapter 22 here, now verse 1 through 6, you have the plot to kill Jesus. This began, the man began his ministry. It's about three and a half years. And the parallel passages here, you can go to Matthew 26, 1 through 5, Mark 14, 1 and 2. And the synoptics again give us little details here and there from different aspects of it. And so we're able to get a full picture on different aspects of it. But in verse 1 it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. The time and plan to kill Jesus has come now to a head. The first six verses here of this chapter really end... The section that began in uh, chapter 20, and it goes all the way to here. Again, sometimes the divisions or chapter divisions, you know, they're just a little bit off. Um, but most of them are pretty good. But this marks the end of it, at the, at the end of verse 6. And the Feast of Passover, as you know, is joined with the Unleavened Feast. You have the uh, 14th day of April uh, for um, the Passover. And then from the 15th to the 22nd, you have, uh, or to the 21st, really, you have Unleavened Bread. And these two are run together, and they're usually um, uh, commonly um, per, uh, made reference to as one, but they're two. In uh, un- unleavened feast, uh, the parents would remove all the leaven from the house, kind of like you know a little game they played, and 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 they would leave a little leaven, and they would search all out, then they would find it and, and take it out of the house, and they would and the children would ask, "What is the meaning of this?" And they would take them back to the Exodus and give them the whole story. Of the exodus and everything and their history and, and, and how God delivered them and everything. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that it was two days before the Passover in Matthew 26, 2 and Mark 14, 1. Now, the um, religious rulers, um, they feared the people in verse 2. This was their one of their main problems. Um, the proverb, Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord shall be safe. Um, when we're in the world and we don't know Jesus Christ, then we're um, moved by many different things. Uh, fear is a very strong um, incentive. Uh, there's greed. There's lust. There's all kinds of different reasons why we do the things we do. But here the failure of these religious men who they were representing God and had lost the fear of God is that they feared the men around them more than God. 
And yet men can only see um, some things, and even though some of the things that they see, they can't be sure if they're real or not. But God sees clean through everything, and they were afraid of being opposed by the people because Jesus was very, very popular. Now today in the church, you've got people speaking things that are crazy regarding the scriptures and about Jesus Christ. And rather than people being outraged about it, they're going along with it in the church. And so it's kind of a turnaround, you know. It's backwards. In verse 3 down to 6, you have the meeting for the um, betrayal of Jesus. Um, verse 3 says, And Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might destroy him or, or betray uh, him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So you have um, here the satanic work of, um, of Satan. Remember, Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And then he was tempted of the devil in his three temptations. And he defeated him. He defeated him in every realm that the first Adam had failed. And it says that in chapter 4, verse 13, that he left him until a more opportune time. Satan was always opposing Jesus through men. It doesn't mean always that Satan confronts, confronted him directly, but he did in the wilderness, but then through the Pharisees, through the Saudis, through the opposition to many different things. And certainly here... Um, Satan wanted to destroy Jesus. Um, he entered into Judas. Now, people argue, was he possessed of that? I, I, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't clearly teach any of that to an extent. But um, supper being ended, we're told in John 12, 2, um, the devil having already put into his heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon now betrayed him. So, Judas Iscariot is, is playing both sides of the fence. He's, he's, he's a disciple of Jesus. He's seeing these miracles. He's hearing this teaching. I, I'm sure that Judas Iscariot preached and prayed over people and they were healed. He sent them out two by twos. Right? So I don't know how you're going to deal with that as a Calvinist. <laughs> and, and, and we are clearly stated by Jesus that he was a devil. One of them. He prayed for him all night to choose them. But here he's in league with the enemy. He's listening to the enemy. He, he's greedy. In fact, uh, he, he pilfered from the, from the treasury box, we're told. And when uh, uh, the perfume was poured upon Jesus, they were upset. And it was Judas Iscariot who said, this could have been sold for... And it says, because he pilfered, he, he stole from it. These kind of sins uh, are, are not absent from the church today either. As long as there's men and women around, those potentials are always there. Our heart is evil, desperately wicked above all things. And the only thing that keeps us from those things, which really pattern our life after the old life, 
is the fear of God. And walking in the spirit with God. Looking to him, no one else. John 13, 27 says, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. We'll see that as we move on in the dialogue here, the narrative. But Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve. Luke 6, he prayed for him all night. And uh, he's called the son of perdition. And Jesus uh, in John seventeen twelve says, While I was yet with them in the world, I kept them in your name, praying to the Father. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. It's interesting that um, uh, the word losing salvation is never found in scripture. But Jesus uses it. I've lost no one but this one. So either Jesus made a mistake praying and picking them, or Judas Iscariot had a free will to walk away. While well, all along God knew he was a devil. And those are things that we can quandre about. But again, every time Jesus speaks about abiding and permeating in Christ. He says, I will cut you off in, like branches. And the continuation of abiding in Christ Jesus. By no means does that mean that we work for our salvation, but certainly our life should conform to Scripture. There should be a radical change from before and after coming to Christ. Now Judas met with the religious ruler in verse 4, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the captains, the temple guards here, um, to figure out the manner and the plan of the betrayal of Jesus. Um, they wanted to be very careful as to not upset uh, both the people. Remember, this is um, Passover, so you've got probably a swelling of population to two and a half million during feast days. So the Roman centurions and the Roman uh, soldiers were on, on high alert during this time. And they bulked up because there could be many revolts and different things. The business transaction is made in verse 5. The Jews were glad there. The religious rulers, they've been plotting, they've been planning. They finally got someone to betray Jesus, one of his own. A Benedict Arnold. Nothing's new, is it? They agreed on a set amount of money, it tells us. Zechariah eleven twelve says thirty pieces of silver prophetically. Matthew twenty six fifteen fulfills it and connects the two. The value of a slave in Exodus twenty one thirty two. Here Judas Iscariot betrays the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, for the price of a slave. And yet he did come as a willful slave to serve and to die for the sins of the world. His motive was love for sinners. Nothing less. In verse 6, the plan was in motion from that point on. Judas promised to betray Jesus. He gave his word. He promised. He walked the line. He straddled the fence. During all that time, I am positive there was conviction. There was the prodding of Jesus. 
that many much of many of his teachings, many times, even in the communion table, we're going to see the Passover, many chances for him to repent. But he kept grieving that, grieving that. And then he stepped over that line. He was there now. He gives his word. Judas then sought opportunity to betray Jesus away from the crowds during Passover. So he's in cahoots with them. They both agree. Both the person who solicited the betrayal and the betrayer. We've got to do it quietly. We do not do it wisely. We've got to do it discreetly. But we've got to do it. Now, there are some who attempt to defend the actions of Judas, saying that Judas was so zealous for the kingdom of God. And as he saw that Jesus was not taking the opportunity to establish the kingdom, that he attempted to, in a way, try to force the hand of Jesus and hope that he would establish the kingdom. Are you kidding me? Are you taking acid when you're reading these passages or what? There's no such thing in the scriptures at all. It's all subjective. That's ludicrous. He's a treacherous man. In fact, Jesus is going to give one of the most sternest warning to Judas for his betrayal. If Judas was helping Jesus, he should have thanked him. <laughs> he did not. In 7 through 23, we have the preparation for the Passover and the Lord's Supper. The parallel passages again, Matthew 27, 17 through 19, Mark 14, 12 through 16. We first have from verse 7 through 13, the instruction of Jesus to his disciples for the Passover. At this point, Matthew and Mark record the anointing of Jesus by um, the woman, uh, of the woman at the house of Simon um, the leopard. Here verse 7 says, then came the unleavened uh, the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the man, to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, here is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. And so they went and they found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. Now the Passover lamb was killed um, that night, in Mark 14, 2, he says, Now the first day of unleavened bread, when they kill the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So again, as we read the three synoptics, we get the fuller picture of what goes on. Jesus sent Peter and John here with very specific instructions in verse 8 through 10 notice um, for the Passover dinner, they would meet a certain man carrying a water pitcher. This was the job of a woman in verse 10. 
That itself was awkward, but it was a very rare and specific sign. They would meet this man. Now, Jesus often spoke things like this, if you remember, that he sent them also as he came into uh, Jerusalem on the donkey. He sent them before to go seek the donkey. And when the person come out, they would tell me the Lord has need of him. God, Jesus knew everything. No one had to tell him anything. And Jesus... Uh, um, was able to minister to people to convict them, to instruct them uh, from afar, whatever it was, he was God. There's no problem with him. People try to figure out, well, did he make these arrangements? He doesn't that. It's very evident that he was in control. Now, it's interesting because the religious rulers think they're in control. You know, they've got their traitor. They've got their plan. They've got everything worked out. It's airtight. Be careful when you think you have everything, your little plans airtight. Especially when they're contrary to the word of God and to the will of God. And you say you're a Christian and you, you, you go to church and you read the Bible and, and, and you're walking in territory that's very, very dangerous. And you think, well, I've got it wired. You know, no one's going to know and I'm going to do this and I'll do that. And if they say this, I'll say that and... And, and you'll end up like Judas Iscariot, hanging yourself. God will give you rope. Either to swing across the chasm of life and to walk with Him or to hang yourself. One of the two. It will be your own doing, not God's. In 11 through 13, Jesus told them what to tell the man. They were to ask for the room, verse 11. They would then be shown the large room furnished with all the furnishings. And then they would go and get it ready. Verse 12. And so they found it in verse um, 13. Just as Jesus had said. And they did exactly as Jesus asked of them. Now, Judas Iscariot... Is not here with them at the time. He didn't know. Now he knew of the place of Gethsemane as we saw this morning. Jesus was going to celebrate the Passover undisturbed. He was going to demonstrate and interpret the fulfillment of it. He was going to share some important things as last instruction to the disciples. And so... Everything is prepared. Everything is set. And yet, in the heart of Jesus, it's the apostles that he has in mind. He knows of the difficulty, and we'll get this as we move on a little bit more as he gets through to the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 14 down to 23, now we have the celebration of the Passover. In 14 to 18, we have the Passover supper here. 14 says, And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He had longed to partake with them. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take the, eat, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. All twelve were present, including Judas Iscariot. We read this through the Gospels. There must have been such a heavy conviction or just the opposite, nothing at all. Sometimes men have done things in history that as we look back upon them and they do documentaries on them or they do movies on them and they are portrayed, if they're portrayed accurate, sometimes as you sit in the audience and say, how could this guy do things like that? Well, it didn't happen overnight. It was one thing after another, one step after another. It was the callousing of the conscience. It was the grieving of all checkpoints, of all warnings. To the point where the heart and the consciousness of man is just like totally gone, abandoned. I think perhaps this was the case with Judas Iscariot. Notice in 15, Jesus expressed his longing to celebrate the Passover. This is unique of Luke, emphasizing this Passover, which has really marked the fulfillment of the Passover as taught in the Old Testament. So they would celebrate this for the last time, the way of old, but it has a transition to the new, as we'll see. In 16, Jesus revealed to them he would not eat of it until the kingdom would be established. Now remember, they have in mind the kingdom is going to be established. He's already demonstrated and told them, no, no, no. But they, you know, so he here tells them again. There's going to be a long interval. They, they don't grasp it. In 17, Jesus took the cup, blessed it, gave it to them to drink, just as they had practiced before and celebrated before for many times. And Jesus revealed to them he would not drink of it again until the kingdom made. Verse 18, he says it again. In 19 to 20, you have the institution of the new meaning of the Passover here. In 19, it says, And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And so in 19, Jesus blessed the bread, he broke it, clearly indicating here, it was his body given for them to be done in remembrance of him. Now, those that try to teach that the body of Christ in communion literally becomes the physical body of Jesus called transubstantiation, that's the practice and dogma of the Catholic Church, is absolutely scriptural. For when Jesus is saying and doing this, he is present with them in body. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So once again, it's reading into the text subjectively in a religious manner or in a freelance manner, but not anywhere in the context would you ever get this from the Scriptures. And then Jesus in 20 took the cup after supper, identifying it as the new covenant in His blood 
shed for them. He's declaring His death clearly to them. He has been telling them about His death and resurrection together from the confession of Caesarea Philippi on down six months prior. But again, their mentality is the kingdom's coming. The present age in the Jew was horrible under Rome right now. The age to come, Messiah's going to knock off Rome. He's going to set up the kingdom. That's why James and John asked him for the right and left hand. They wanted to be the top dogs when they got to Jerusalem. Set up the kingdom. Man, we're going to be Jesus number one, you two, me three. <laughs> Interesting. And so the new covenant spoken by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31. Now this is yet to be fulfilled for Israel. God will give them a new heart also, but it will be at the end of the tribulation. He will deal with them in the middle when they will see they're betrayed by the Messiah, by the Antichrist, which passes himself as Messiah when the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel Prophet takes place as the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple, declares himself God, Matthew twenty four fifteen and Second Thessalonians chapter two. And they flee to the wilderness, which we believe will be over in Jordan, in the city of Petra. Whether it's there or anywhere else, doesn't matter. God will protect her for the last three and a half years. And they will call upon the name of the Lord. And then God will deal with the remnant. And they will call upon their Messiah. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five, And so, here again, he, um, he clearly... He shares with them the new covenant, the um, aspect of, um, um, of his plans, which um, were not according to them. They, um, they, they had their agenda. They had their mind set up. But um, Jesus was very patient with them, as he is with us. And... Um, he continues to instruct them. Paul the Apostle spoke about the communion table in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 32 And he, um, he rebuked them for partaking in a wrong manner, eating too much and drinking too much. And, and, and some of them were sick and some had died. And so the, the, the worthiness of the communion table is not based upon that I'm perfect, but that I'm walking right with God. And that before I come to the communion table, I should confess anything that I feel would hinder me, lest I would partake presumptuously, really not discerning the holiness and the sacredness of the communion table. And that's what he's talking about. When we get to verse 21... Down to 23. We have the announcement of Jesus about his betrayal now. He says, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who should do this thing. Amazing. In 21, his betrayer was sitting with him at the table. Now, every one of you seem to be sitting clothed and sane, very calm, 
very attentive, very peaceful. How would you be sitting if you knew the person next to you? After you parked your car, had broken in, took your $3,000 stereo out, sliced up your leather seats, and then had the nerve to come in here and sit right next to you. Would you be sitting as calm as you are right now? Jesus knew exactly what Judas Iscariot was going to do. In fact, I believe he probably washed Judas Iscariot's feet as we're going to see that that's what he does, an example of a servant. And you look at the Gospels, you put all three of them together, and you count the number of checks that Jesus gave to Judas Iscariot, opportunities to turn. You say, well, that's impossible. It was prophesied he would do it. It was prophesied that someone would betray him. And God knew it would be Judas, Judas, but God didn't force Judas to do it. If Judas would have denied that and not yielded to it, then God would have prophesied of someone else who would have yielded. God didn't force him to do it. Very, very important. They were reclining around the U-shaped table, as you know. They didn't sit on chairs with silverware and glasses and napkins. <laughs> Matthew 26, Mark 14 again confirms all this. John tells us Judas dipped the bread and then left. John thirteen twenty-seven. A twofold prophecy, Ahithophel and Judas, in Psalm 41, 9. It says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Prophetic of Ahithophel's betrayal and treachery to David. Short term, long term, Judas for Messiah. The stern warning to Judas is given in 22. Jesus declared that his betrayal was prophetic and would take place. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But the prophecy only reveals the fact of the betrayal. But not that Judas was predetermined by God's doing to betray Jesus. Otherwise, God would be responsible for the betrayal of his own son by forcing Judas to be the betrayer. And really violating his will. And if he judged him for that, then God would be unjust. Because if God predicted by decree or predestination that Judas would do it without any choice of his own, then God is really responsible for that sin and he's judging Judas Iscariot wrongfully. You can't have it both ways. Prophecy is only the revelation of what will happen, whether it's good or evil. It's not the declaration that God forces the person to do the good and evil. He only knows about the good and evil. Are we clear on that? You got to be careful what you lay on God. 
Some of the things people lay on God is crazy. Jesus declared the severe judgment of that man. But woe to the man to whom he is betrayed. Verse 22. Judas was not a victim. He was not innocent, but responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. Woe to that man. He's not riding a horse. What was judgment? Judas was given many opportunities, I said, by Jesus. Even as David was given many checks before he solicited Bathsheba and laid with her. You and I, when we were in the world, even though we were dead and trespassed in sins, we got many checks before we committed whatever it was that we committed. And once we crossed that line, it was too late. It was done. But we were warned. Because we were creating the image and likeness of God and God gave us a conscience to know right and wrong. To feel shame and guilt. That's what our Creator gave us. But we can callous all that if we do it long enough. Stubbornly enough. And we abandon ourselves to those things. Notice in 23, then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Amazingly, all of them, all of them thought they were capable of betraying Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, 22. Lord, it says, And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Mark 14, 19. And they began to be sorrowful, and they said to him one by one, Is it I? Another said, Is it I? John 13, 22. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. They were in a U-shaped table, like you see him. They're looking down. Who is it? And they were the last one is them, and they're looking. Is it I? Every one of them understood they were capable. Don't ever be overconfident about your inability to do certain things. Your response and mine should be, I hope it's not me. I'm going to do all that I can to make sure it's not me. I'm not going to go down that road. You fill in the blank, whatever it is. <laughs> Our heart is desperately wicked above all things. Jeremiah 17.9 When we get to 24 down to 30, the disciple dispute over greatness. The passage that is parallel is Matthew twenty twenty five through 28 and Mark 10, 42 through 45. First, we have uh, the dispute and response of Jesus in 24 to 27. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. 
On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Whoa. The dispute and response of Jesus is given to us there in verse 24 to 27. Notice in 24, this dispute, which means strive contention, it was hot about who is the greatest among them, recorded three times, Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Mark 10, 42 through 45, right here in Luke. Luke alone tells us that it took place at the supper here. But it happened before. We'll get to verse 46 and 48. John gives us the practical demonstration of the rebuke during the supper when Jesus gets up and washes the feet of all of them in John 13. He's God. He emptied himself of his glory, took on the form of a servant, even obedient to the death of the cross. And here he is. What's he doing? He says, let me show you who's great. Let me show you how you become great by serving others. Washing feet was the responsibility of the lowest of slaves of the house. When you were, came into a house, the lowest slave would wash your feet. If the master or the owner had no servants, the master or the owner himself would wash your feet. It was the lowliest job. Notice 25, Jesus pointed out the worldly model of leadership. Lording over people, exercising. We've all had an opportunity to work in the world, being a non-believer. And you know, people, they get into power positions and they get promoted. And they um, are friends with the boss or whatever. Boy, they just, they just run all over the place, don't they? It's amazing. In 26, Jesus rebuked them. They were to be models of servanthood to others but not so among you what a rebuke on the contrary who is the greatest among you let him be as the younger he who governs as he who serves in 27 Jesus makes himself the ultimate example of this he was greater than any of them he was sitting at the table yet here he is now serving among them and had been so amazing. And so it is for us, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how old you are in the Lord, no matter how much God has used you, you should be the greatest servant of all. You should be there for others. Um, you should be in the background as well as I, not calling attention to ourselves, but just doing whatever God directs us. And when God does something and people try to point to you, say, you know what, the Lord's good. He does incredible things, doesn't he? And just move on. Don't, don't believe the press too much or you, you'll get carried away. 28 down to 30, you have the apostles uh, that would be um, rewarded for their service. Even in, in the midst of rebuke, he, he gives them some good news here. Um, in 28, he says, but you are those who have uh, continued with me in my trial. 
And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they had continued with him through his trial. The word continue means to stay or to remain permanently. They had been with Jesus for those three and a half years. They had left all. In 29, they would be given a kingdom as the Father had given the Jesus a kingdom, a high privilege. What an honor. In 30, they would sit on, at his table, again in the kingdom, on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 28 gives you that parallel passage. And so in spite of their carnality, of their of their wanting to be served, Jesus reminds them that nothing goes unnoticed by God. No one will ever get a, a short change or a raw deal in judgment or in reward or the lack thereof. Uh, he knows the motive of the heart. He knows everything. In 31 down to 38, you have the prediction of Peter's denial and um, as well as persecution. Uh, this is unique of Luke. In 31 to 34, you have the words of Jesus to Peter. He says, and the Lord says, Simon, Simon. Now, when Jesus says Simon, pay attention. When he says Simon, Simon twice, or John, John, or Lily, Lily, or whatever, then he says, pay real close attention here. Um, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have... Um, Pray for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen um, your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you, uh, that, um, that you know me. Wow. It must have shocked Peter. Because he was, I don't doubt that he was sincere. Just as you and I, we can remember in our past when we say, I would never do that. I would never say that. I would, but, and then when we did, we were shocked that we did what we said we would never do. Self-confidence is something that um, we have to be careful of. We have to be Christ confident in Him and Him alone. Satan asked for Him in verse 31. Satan asked permission of God about Job. Job, God first solicited the testing and then the, Satan and with his, uh, the sons of God, the children of God, the, the sons of God, the angels, he got in line and solicited the, well, you know, let me touch his, his, his what he has. And, and, and God allowed certain things. Why does God allow? We don't know. But God is able to strengthen us, even as he did Job. And Job says, you know, God gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, God rewarded him. But he went through some pretty, pretty difficult times. Um, the word you there in verse 31 is in the plural. So it's not only Peter, but all of them. Usually we teach it just Peter, but it's including all of them. Wheat needs to be sifted out to obtain the pure wheat. So we will go through difficult times. We will go through things that will purify us. Peter says, fiery trials. We shouldn't think them strange for, you know, as something 
that's unnatural, it will purify us. Jesus prayed for Peter in verse 32, you, singular now, that you not fail your faith. It means cease or eclipse. And when he came through in verse 32, he was to strengthen his brethren. When he returned to God, to confirm, to establish, as he had been the recipients of mercy and grace, that he would do the same to those who would falter, or those who would fail. Now, we want to be as graceful as God is, but that don't ever misinterpret that to be permissive. The gracefulness comes with true, genuine repentance. And love covers a multitude of sins when there's genuine repentance. But we have to be careful we don't use the grace of God as a license to sin. Paul says, perish the thought. God forbid that we should do that. And so in 33, Peter declared his willingness to go to prison and even die for Jesus. Once again, I don't believe he doubted it. But Peter again was looking to his self-assurance and confidence, his abilities. They became double weaknesses. We have to guard ourselves in them. And then in 34, Jesus speaking prophetically tells Peter that he would deny him three times. Matthew 26, 31 through 35. Mark 14, 27 through 31. The shepherd would be stricken and the sheep would be scattered. All of them. In 35 to 38, we have the warning of future perilous times. He says, and he said to them, when I sent you among, uh, when I sent you without money bags, knapsacks and sandals, did you lack anything? Of course, the answer is no. So they said nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two stores. And he said to them, it's enough. They just don't get it. They, they can't connect the dots. 35 and 36, the needed preparation. This is in contrast to the presence of. Uh, of Jesus with them prior in Luke 10, 4 and 9, where he provided everything. They needed none of these things. Now he's going to leave. Difficult times are coming. Persecution's coming. The sword is for defense, verse 36. I know people have a hard time with this, and they try to spiritualize it and say, well, it was just, you know, to... You know, cut down wood so when they have to build fire and, you know, all kinds of subjective stuff. The sword is for defense. Difficult times were coming. We are not to murder anybody. We are not to kill anybody. But God sent out His people to war. So for a soldier to go and defend his country is not murder. 
when their country is being threatened. When someone would attempt to break in your house and attempt to kill you or do damage to your wife and you defend yourself and someone else, that is not murder. Even in the law, you had the right to defend yourself. But sometimes we become so pacifists in mind, we're afraid we're going to do violence to the scriptures. We are not. Not at all. 37 and 8, the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. Substitutionary death, vicariously. All these things would be fulfilled. Now, Jesus was not advocating violence, but simply stating the difficult times they had and that they would be persecuted. And once again, self-defense is not against Scripture. So, you know, many people say, well, the death penalty is not biblical. It isn't. Well, then why did God give it in Genesis 9? Why does He give it in the New Testament? The sword, Rome, does not bear the sword in vain. That's capital punishment, so we're to obey the government. It's real simple, okay? So, if you don't believe in it, I, I'll, I can accept your opinion, but that's what it is. The Bible is very, very clear. The land is polluted when we don't put to death the murderer. And because we don't do that, we put bars on our windows because we let people who are behind bars out. Where if we put them to death, we wouldn't have to spend the money on keeping them alive, getting a college degree, and then suing the state for sending them to prison. Simple. Real simple. Well, let's move on. 39 through 46, you have the prayer of Jesus in the garden. This morning, as I said, we dealt with it in death. We won't belabor it. But um, the parallel passage, Matthew 26, 30-45, Mark 14, 26-42. And here in 39, says, coming out, meaning from the Last Supper, okay? The Passover, they just left the city. They're coming down through these, uh, the side of the east gate, down across the Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, um, he went to the Mount of Olives, and he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. So they were very familiar with this area. Uh, without doubt, someone who he knew or a disciple of his, a wealthy man, allowed him to resort there, a place of just refuge to an extent. As you know, he only went to Bethany um, once he came to the city on Thursday, but then every day after that, he went teaching in the temple, Luke tells us, in chapter 21, and then he went out to the Mount of Olives to spend the night, um, every night the rest of that week. And here he comes with the disciples, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you do not enter into temptation. His concern again, as we said this morning, is for the um, uh, the disciples, the apostles here. They have just finished singing the Hallel Psalms at 113 to 18. They're just rejoicing. Um, even at this point, the apostles, they probably think, yeah, he's going to set up the kingdom now. But uh, Jesus knows better what the things are going to happen. And, and when he came to the place, verse 40, he said to them, Pray that you may not have temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed. Again, the parallel passages of Matthew 26 and Mark 14 um, revealed to us that, that he went from his knees to his face on the ground to being totally prostrated. The intensity of this agony that's going on. 
um, saying to the Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So here once again, in, in 42, Jesus is praying for the will of the Father. He's asking if there's any other way for man to be saved uh, without me going to the cross. What he feared was the wrath of God. Not the death on the cross or that Satan might kill him before the cross. That, that's subjective. It's not now we're in here. But that he would be separated from the Father for the first time. He would literally die physically. He would be the, 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 the sin offering on your behalf and mine. And there would be a separation, a violation of his person in such a way that you and I can never understand on this side of heaven. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. If you go down two or three verses, because you are holy and Jesus became sin for us. So there was a chasm, a separation. And that's why the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 3 says that for the joy that was set before me endured the cross, the spice and the shame. And he went to sit at the right hand of the Father. What was the joy? The joy who was going to be reunited with the Father. That was his joy. You ever been gone from your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband for a while and the joy when you're united? Yes. Saying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. The, the, the wrath of God was poured on him. In 43, then the angel appeared to him from heaven to strengthen him. Luke is unique in this. No one else tells us about this. An angel, Jesus was made lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.9 tells us. To partake of us too, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he strengthened, can you imagine this angel? He knew who Jesus was, he was up in heaven with him, and now he sees him in this situation, he sees the agony, he sees the, the torment he's in, he sees the pleading, he hears it, and he's been sent by the Father to strengthen the second person of the Godhead as he's become the last Adam, the Lamb of God. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, more intently, and the sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the medical term. Luke is a physician. Or there's such pressure, such agony, that the blood comes through the pores and then mingles with sweat and it doesn't just stain the forehead and the skin, but they drop to the ground. Blood clots, literally, thrombosis. This is where the victory comes, as we'll see. Not at the cross, but in the garden. You remember in the garden, back in Genesis, Satan was there? And he deceived Adam and Eve. Satan was present here, guaranteed. The agony, the warfare. But Jesus is fighting with spiritual warfare, spiritual weapons. Depending on prayer, seeking the Lord, His Father. And then in 45, there's a relief. It's been settled. It's been resolved. He arose up from prayer as He had come to His disciples and he found them asleep from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Matthew and Mark again give us the parallel passages 
of, 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 of the different expressions and they didn't know how to answer him and, 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 and they were sorrowful. That's why they slept. Luke is the only one that tells us that. They were just kind of bummed out with the way things were going. They were expecting so much more when they got to Jerusalem. And 47 down to 53, you have the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near Jesus and kissed him. The word kisses repeatedly. He betrays him with a kiss and Jesus will make mention of this. But Jesus said to them, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? That's the term of Messiahship. As he became man with a kiss repeatedly. This was the signal for them to come and take hold of him. And when those around him saw what was going on and happening, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Peter, verse 49 here. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Malchus is his name. John 18.10 tells us that. Verse 50. Now can you imagine as Jesus takes that guy's ear and just slaps it back on? This is the last healing done by Jesus. It's against his enemy. It's against the one that came to take him away. I don't think Malchus ever got over it. We may see him in heaven. If we don't, woe to him. <laughs> 52 says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captain of the temple and the elders, who had come to him, have you come out against a robber and swords and clubs? In other words, he had been with them every day. It could have taken them any time. But they chose not to. When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. God allowed this opportunity for Satan and for these men who yielded to Satan. Their hour for a set time. But there would be joy. Three days afterwards. There would be victory. In a tangible way. Right now the victory will be accomplished at the garden. But in the resurrection it would be confirmed completely. And 54 says having arrested him. They led him and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, as you put all three Gospels together, and even John gives some supplementary material, there were three different trials for Jesus. The high priest, Caiaphas' house, Iannis, Caiaphas' house, and then the Sanhedrin. They were all illegal. They were at night. They had passed judgment on him without having 24-hour period. And they it just everything about it was completely wrong. Um... Here, Peter now is following at a distance. It's always dangerous when we follow Jesus Christ at a distance. You want to stay as close as you can with Jesus. 
In 55, it says, Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, right in the middle. Now we know that by John, John tells us that, that John got him in because John knew the high priest. Okay? So probably Malchus, probably the servant of, 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 of the high priest sent him, and John probably knew him. In fact, he probably, when he was there, he probably looked up and said, Hey, dude, what are you doing? And Peter got in because John got him in. And here he is in the middle. And a certain servant girl seeing him as he sat by the fire. Looked intently at him, gazing at him. Said, this man was also with him. Can you imagine Peter freaks out? It's got a cold night. He's warming himself. But he denied him saying, woman, I do not know him. That's one. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. So this other one is masculine, a man. And then after about an hour passed by, Peter probably said, That was close. An hour goes by, I'm safe. Another confidently affirmed saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. His accent gave him away. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he has said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. His heart must have rent. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. So from 54 to 62, you have the arrest of Jesus, the denial of Peter. Horrible time for Peter. Jesus knew all about it. He warned them about it. He told them what to do when that happened, to repent, to turn to him. And so, from 63 down to 65 is the mocking and the beating of Jesus. Now the man, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Now once again, as you combine all the three synoptics, you'll find the different beatings and, and mockings and things that went on with, with the Sanhedrin and with the Annas Caiaphas and then also with the, the Roman centurions of soldiers. By the time they brought Jesus forth, Isaiah 53 tells that he was not recognized as a man when they got through with him. And many other things they blasphemed spoke Blasphemy spoke against him because he's God. He's the Messiah. And they're saying, no, you're not. And they physically abused him and beat him. Verbally abused him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him to their council, the Sanhedrin. If you are the Christ, the title of Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, 
you will by no means believe me. If I tell you, you'll call me a liar. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. What does he mean? In other words, if you're asking me, verse 67, are you the Christ? After what they interpret him to be, it would be no. Let me explain, but you'll call me a liar anyway. 68, if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. So if I try to clarify what Messiah I am, the kind of Messiah that was prophesied, a suffering Messiah first, you won't accept it. You're looking for a conquering Messiah. Either way, you're not going to believe me. Wow. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Boof. What better answer than this? He says, you don't believe who I am? Let me take you to the future. You're going to see me again. You're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand. Wow. Returning. Power, great glory. Not great glory, but great glory. Then they said, all of them, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. Amen. I am. God can not lie. And they said, What further testimony do we need? But we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. This is the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. As you think of our Supreme Courts today, or Supreme Court, and our Congress, and our Senate, they're all a joke, much like the Sanhedrin. Foolish, senile, Old men that are full of themselves apart from reason and common sense. There are a few out there, but the majority are out to lunch. All men in authority will stand before Jesus one day. They will bow, but forcibly, for judgment. He gives opportunity now that you might do it willingly. That the grace of God would fall upon you. That He would forgive you of your sins. That He would fill you with His Spirit. That He would give you a new heart. That He would give you a living hope. That He would give you strength for the difficult things of your life. And that you might be just an example and a light and salt to those around you like you never have been able to do on your own might. <laughs> that is the hope for mankind. Nothing less. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for tonight, for your word, and we pray you continue to deal with us, Lord. Thank you for your word. We pray for every person here, for myself, that you would just allow this word to go down deep in our heart. That, Lord, we would not just keep it in our brain, 
that you would transform us from day to day, from glory to glory. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to repent of your sins and be saved. He alone can make you whole. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can cleanse me from my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not any works, not any amount of tears, not any amount of saying, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I didn't know what I was doing. None of that will absolve you of what you have done except for the blood of Jesus Christ. Precious, as Peter says. If this is your desire, whether you're in the uh, internet or here, present now, you can accept Him through a prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to Him and He will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.